The year I turned 40, the bottom dropped out of my faith. After walking with God my whole life and nearly 20 years in ministry, I suddenly doubted everything I had always believed. Was the Bible really true? Was Jesus really the Son of God? Did He rise from the dead? Does He live today in the lives of His people? The growth of our church, the change we'd seen in people's lives, was this really a work of God? Or was it just a happy coincidence of strategy and psychology and good luck? It was a very unsettling experience, especially since I made my living preaching these things. Doubt blindsided me and knocked me into a spiritual tailspin that lasted for well over a year. Now, there were a variety of factors, I'm sure, that were at play in that experience. Uh, some ministry burnout, probably, some midlife issues, but the crux of it was a crisis of faith. Did I really believe that Christianity was real and true? And at one point, my doubts became so intense, I really couldn't preach anymore. So I went to the elders of the church and said, I either need to take a break or resign. So they gave me a three-month sabbatical, the first one I'd had, and it probably saved my faith. Now, we are into week three of our series, Exploring Doubt and Faith. And in case we haven't made it clear yet, I want to make it very clear this morning. Seekers and skeptics aren't the only ones who face doubts. Believers struggle with doubt as well, even the strongest believers. One day, John the Baptist sent word to Jesus. At this point, Jesus' ministry was in full swing. He was preaching to great crowds of people, performing miracles, attracting a following. But John found himself in prison, facing a very uncertain future. And so he sent word to Jesus. Matthew tells us, When John heard in prison what Jesus was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one was, who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Now this is John the Baptist. I mean, his very birth was a miracle, born to Zechariah and Elizabeth in their old age. John had it was a relative of Jesus. He had baptized Jesus. He saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove. He heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my son. John pointed thousands of people to Jesus. And now he's beginning to doubt. He's wondering if Jesus is really the one. Now, if doubt can happen to John the Baptist, it can happen to any of us. It happened to me, and it's probably happened to you. What we're learning here in this series is that we don't have to be afraid of our doubts, that doubt can actually lead us to a stronger faith if we face those doubts, if we ask the hard questions, if we consider the evidence, and if we come to our own conclusions. And so on Easter Sunday, we looked at evidence for the resurrection. We talked about the empty tomb and the change of disciples and a variety of things. Last week, we looked at scientific evidence for the faith. We looked at the universe around us and the human experience. And we said, what's the best explanation for these realities? Did it happen by chance? Or is there an eternal, intelligent, personal, creative God behind it all? Well, today we'd like to look at the historical evidence for the Christian faith. And in particular, the historical evidence for Jesus of Nazareth. Because in the end, Christianity rises or falls on Jesus. 
Now, that's not true of every religious belief system. In fact, it's not true of most belief systems. Confucianism, Buddhism, Islam, these are profound spiritual worldviews and, and belief systems. And they're founded on the teachings of particular leaders and significant spiritual guides. But those religious systems, those ways of life, those practices of worship are really not dependent upon the details of that founder's life and death. Christianity rests on the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth, the particular details about him. It rests on the reality that this man named Jesus lived an exemplary life, that he performed miraculous deeds, that he died a very particular kind of a death, and that he allegedly rose from the dead on the third day and still lives today. Now, if those things are not historically true, then Christianity falls like a house of cards on a windy day. So in my dark night, I directed my attention on Jesus of Nazareth. I needed to know that the Jesus I had entrusted myself to, the Jesus I had devoted my life to, I needed to know that he was real and true. And so for about a year, I did reading and research into Jesus of Nazareth, including a doctoral course I took on the Gospel of Luke. And in the course of those studies and that research, I really came across four lines of evidence that became very significant in my faith journey. I'd like to share those with you today. And as you listen to them, I'd like you to listen for one or two that might be especially meaningful for you as you wrestle with the identity of Jesus. So four lines of evidence. The first I'll point to is the reliability of the gospel records. The reliability of the gospel records. The primary source we have for the life and times of Jesus is the Bible, and in particular, what we call the four Gospels. But how reliable are those documents? I mean, who wrote them and when? And who's to say they haven't been corrupted and tampered with down through the centuries? And who's to say they're not just made-up myths and legends by people who, who came along much later after the fact? You see, critics claim that we have to separate the Jesus of history from the Christ of faith. Even skeptical historians today will acknowledge that someone named Jesus lived and said and did some remarkable things. But they want to separate that Jesus of history from the Christ of faith, who they suggest was a later invention of people who came much after in the Christian movement and wrote those things back into the story. The problem with that kind of reasoning is that the Gospels show no evidence for that kind of tampering, that kind of corruption, or that kind of mythologizing. Let me show you what I mean. Listen to the opening words of Luke's Gospel. Luke writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, let's just notice a couple of things here. Notice, first of all, how seriously Luke, the author, has taken this task of his. He says he is drawing on many, many accounts, that these accounts are eyewitness accounts, that they are eyewitnesses who were there from the beginning, so people who have seen the whole thing. And he says that he himself has investigated the authenticity of each of these accounts. 
This man, Theophilus, seems to have been a Gentile convert who was beginning to have questions about his faith. And so Luke decides to construct this document to strengthen his faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the interesting thing is that scholars of ancient literature will point out that this kind of introduction, this formal introduction, was very common in the ancient world. It's found especially in volumes of history, and it's found in medical textbooks of the day. All that suggests that Luke was a very capable, careful, experienced scholar, and likely the physician that tradition tells us he was. And let's remember that Luke is just one of four accounts that we have. Matthew and Mark, or Matthew and Luke, of course, were followers of Jesus, as, well, as John was. And then Mark was a young man who also followed along with the crowd and based his writings on the, on the memories and recollections of the apostle Peter. So four eyewitness accounts. But now who's to say these accounts weren't just made up later on and kind of written back into the story? The problem is that these accounts bear all the telltale signs of eyewitness testimony. For instance, the vivid details, like Jesus laying his head on a pillow during the storm at sea, or the green grass during the feeding of the 5,000, or the blood and the water flowing from out of Jesus' side. As if the writers, in their mind's eye, are seeing those events again, even as they tell and write the story. Vivid details. We also have the minor inconsistencies in the Gospels. For instance, Matthew talks about two demoniacs in the region of the Gerasenes. The other writers talk about one demoniac. Now, are they contradicting each other? No, they're just offering different perspectives on one event. One mentions the two of them, one only mentions the one. If someone says, it was a sunny day yesterday, and someone else says it was cloudy yesterday, you're not contradicting each other, you're both right. It was sunny part of the day, and it was cloudy part of the day. The important thing is it didn't snow yesterday. So, <laughs> it's all good, okay? These, these minor inconsistencies, these varieties from story to story, they authenticate the authenticity of these accounts. If they were made up by people conspiring to concoct something, they would have harmonized all these details. Instead, they bear the mark of authenticity. Keep in mind also that these stories were written down very soon after they happened, for the most part within one generation, 30 or 40 years or so. In fact, archaeologists have a scrap from one of the Gospels, a copy, of, a, a scrap of a copy from one of the Gospels that looks like it was from about 40 A.D. That's very soon afterwards, which means that people who lived through these events were still alive. People who'd been at Lazarus' grave, people who knew Zacchaeus, residents of Jerusalem who watched Jesus die, they were still alive. It would have been impossible to perpetrate outright lies about Jesus while people were still alive who could challenge them. You might imagine someone today suggesting that Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't shot to death on a balcony in Tennessee, but he died at home in his sleep. It would never stand up. People were there. They, they heard the shots. They saw him fall. Their, their clothes were stained with his blood. All these things were written down in the lifetimes of people who were still alive at the time. And this, the accounts read like historical narrative, not like myths and legends. Now, as it turns out, there are some legendary accounts of Jesus written in later centuries. 
but they tend to have these fantastical kind of details. For instance, one of them has Jesus emerging from the tomb, riding on the shoulders of Gabriel and Michael, the angels. Now think about that mythological image compared to the humble, honest account of a mysteriously empty tomb and a handful of confused, frightened women. They read like historical narrative. Then someone else will say, yeah, but, but how can we really trust those documents? I mean, we don't have the original manuscripts, so who is to say they haven't been doctored and corrupted over the years? And it's true. We don't have any of the original manuscripts from any of the New Testament documents. What we do have are thousands and thousands of copies and fragments of copies from all over the world of the Middle East. And together, we're able to compare and put together a credible um, record of all those documents. We have far more fragments and copies for the Bible than we do for any other writing in ancient literature. Let's just take one for instance. One of the most widely accepted pieces of ancient literature is Homer's epic poem, The Iliad. Well, the Iliad, we have about 643 fragments or copies of Homer's Iliad, the earliest of which was written 500 years after the original was written. When you come to the New Testament, we have 24,000 copies or fragments of copies, the earliest of which was written within 50 years of the events originally happening. The New Testament is far and away the most credible historical document we have from the ancient world. Uh, that's fine, some folks will say. But that's all propaganda. It's all Christian writing. If Jesus really lived and did all these remarkable things, then other people would have written about him. Well, you know what? They did. And that's the second line of evidence, is non-Christian records of Jesus, non-biblical accounts. For instance, we have Jewish sources that refer to Jesus. Now keep in mind, as Jewish writers, they had no reason or desire to want to validate uh, the life and influence of Jesus, but they do anyway. One of the most notable, of course, is Josephus, a highly regarded historian of the first century. He was a Pharisee. He was a military commander. He wrote volumes and volumes of history of the Jewish people. Listen to what he writes in one of those. At this time there appeared Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people, and he gained a following both among many Jews and many of Greek origin. And when Pilate, because of an accusation made by leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, those who had loved him previously did not cease to do so. And up until this very day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not died out. Now, Josephus is just one of several ancient Jewish historians who confirm the life and influence of Jesus. We also have Roman historians referring to Jesus. Some of them come from as early as about 110 to 120 A.D. One of the most highly regarded, Tacitus, describes Nero's reign and his persecution of the Christians. And listen to what he writes. Christus, from whom the name has its origin suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Now Tacitus, along with Suetonius and Pliny from the same time period, confirm the life and influence of Jesus. Thirdly, we have pagan sources referring to Jesus. We have a letter from a Stoic philosopher 
written from prison to a friend in the year 75 A.D. And this is what he writes. What good did it do the Athenians to kill Socrates? What did it avail the Samians to burn Pythagoras? Or what did it avail the Jews to kill their king? Now, no one doubts the existence of Socrates or Pythagoras. Why should we doubt the existence of Jesus of Nazareth? And then finally, it's worth mentioning that we do have other Christian sources outside the Bible. Now, many of these were written later. They do not bear the same stamp of authenticity and accuracy as the biblical documents. That's why they're not included in the Scripture. But they still tell many of the stories and record many of the sayings of the life and times and teaching of this man named Jesus. All this to say, we have a wealth of reliable historical information, both in the Scriptures and outside the Scripture. More so for Jesus of Nazareth than for any other figure of ancient history. Very few scholars today, even the most skeptical, will deny that someone named Jesus lived, died, and said and did some remarkable things. It's widely accepted by everyone. A third line of evidence has to do with the birth of Christianity. Now this next argument here was very significant for me in my, in my journey of faith uh, 15 or 20 or so years ago. As I said, I took this doctoral course and it introduced me to the writings of the just then becoming popular theologian and historian, uh, scholar N.T. Wright. And nowadays, he's become a, a leading figure in the Christian world and in the academic world, but he was just kind of coming on the scene then. Now, uh, here's a picture of Dr. Wright. The guy just looks smart, right? <laughs> and he's from the UK, so he's got this accent. He sounds really, really smart, and he really is smart, but he's also gracious. I heard uh, Dr. Wright in a, at Harvard University uh, this past year. He was in a debate with a couple of Harvard professors and all I can tell you is he absolutely outshone them with both his intellect and his arguments, but also with his grace and his good humor. He's a brilliant, wonderful man. And Wright's basic argument as a historian is that Jesus explains the middle. What he means is that Jesus is the only explanation for how we get from Judaism to Christianity in less than 100 years. Here's what we know for a fact historically. At the beginning of the first century, something called Judaism existed. And it was a very distinctive faith characterized by several practices. The observance of a Sabbath day on Saturday. The expectation of a kingly Messiah. Circumcision as a symbolic rite. Ceremonial laws governing diet and dress. A sacrificial system for the forgiveness of sins. And an exclusive mindset. It was for the Jewish people only. So we know that for a fact. The second thing we know for a fact is that at the end of the first century, something called Christianity existed. And this thing called Christianity bore some resemblances to Judaism and retained some of its Judaistic roots and yet it was distinctive enough to give birth to a whole new movement. And it was characterized by some other distinctive practices. For instance, they worshipped on Sunday instead of on the Sabbath. They looked to a crucified Messiah rather than a, than a kingly Messiah. They practiced baptism instead of circumcision. 
They abandoned the ceremonial laws for a law of love. They preached salvation through faith. And they welcomed people from all nations into the community of faith. It was an exclusive and an inclusive kind of a faith. So here's the question for $100. How do you get from here to there? For a thousand years or more, Judaism had enjoyed a monolithic presence in the world. It had survived apostasy and exile and the destruction of its temple. And then suddenly, there is this cultural, theological upheaval that within the span of one generation gave birth to a new movement so radical that Judaism could no longer contain it and it took on a life of its own. What happened in the middle of that first century that can explain such a transformation? How do we explain the middle? Well, N.T. Wright argues, only a figure as towering and unique as Jesus and only events as dramatic as a crucifixion and a resurrection can possibly account for such a radical upheaval and transformation spiritually. And Wright argues from what he calls, you ready? The double criterion of similarity and dissimilarity. All right, hang with me for a minute. The double criterion of similarity and dissimilarity. What he means by that is this founder, this middle figure, had to be similar enough to Judaism to have emerged from it, and yet different enough from Judaism to not be confused with it and to start something radically new. At the same time, this figure had to be similar enough to Christianity to have founded it, and yet distinctive enough not to have just been written back into it by these people later on. See, many skeptics, as we said, have argued that the Christ of faith is a later invention of the church, of people like the Apostle Paul, who invented Christ and then wrote all that stuff back into the Gospels. The problem is there's no evidence to support that. I think of it this way. What, what was Jesus' favorite topic, his favorite thing to talk about? The kingdom of God. Favorite topic. You hardly find the Apostle Paul using the expression the kingdom of God. In all of his 13 letters, he hardly uses that expression. Now think about the words that are so favorite of Paul's, salvation, justification, sanctification, grace. You hardly hear Jesus mention those words in his teaching. If these later writers invented Jesus to bolster their faith, they did a lousy job. Because Jesus is similar enough to have given birth to it, but different enough to stand apart. The simple truth, right, is arguing is that no one in first century Judaism would possibly have conceived of a suffering Messiah or a once-for-all sacrifice or a bodily resurrection from the dead. Those ideas were not on the radar screen. No one would have invented them. Something had to have happened. Jesus is what happened. Jesus explains the middle. Now, even N.T. Wright admits that this is a little bit dense. So he offers an illustration to try to explain it. Now, Wright happens to be a musician, so he draws an illustration from the world of music. He says, The music of Mozart was clearly influenced by his predecessor, Bach. And yet Mozart's music is different enough to be considered something new. At the same time, on the other end, Mozart's music clearly prepared the way for Beethoven. And it was significantly different enough not to be confused with Beethoven's music. So you can see how one led to the other led to the other. 
The point is, you can't get from Bach to Beethoven without Mozart. He explains the middle. Now, if that's lost on you a little bit, think of it this way. How do you get from Sinatra to the Beatles? <laughs> All right? From a big band crooners to rock and roll. How do you get there? Elvis. Elvis explains the middle. Any musical historian of the 20th century will tell you, you can't get there from here without Elvis. Now, let's not get carried away with this. Do not look for Elvis to come back from the dead, okay? It's just an illustration, all right? In fact, let's take it up a notch a little bit. How do we get from the Jim Crow laws of the early 20th century right into the 40s and the 50s? to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the sweeping changes taking place still in our society. How do we get from there to here? Martin Luther King Jr. Not just his life, but the things he said. The I Have a Dream speech. The things he did. The, the bridge at Selma. His death, his assassination. It's hard to imagine how he would have gotten from here to there without someone like a Martin Luther King Jr. saying and doing those kinds of things. In the same way, only a figure as towering and unique as Jesus and events as dramatic as a crucifixion and a resurrection can explain the birth and rise of a religious movement unlike anything the world had ever seen before. The birth of the Christian church. And that leads us to the fourth and final evidence that we'll look at today, and that is the uniqueness of Jesus. The uniqueness of Jesus. What sets Jesus apart from every other religious figure in history are the unique claims that he and his followers made about him. Again, think about some of the religious figures in history. Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha. Confucius, Mohammed. These are all significant figures who lived significant lives, who said significant things, who founded religious movements that shaped the world today. But none of them ever claimed to be divine. None of them claimed to perform miracles. None of them were reputed to have come back from the dead. Jesus, on the other hand, claimed to be one with the Father, the great I Am of the Old Testament Scriptures, and the Son of God. He offered evidence of this by performing signs and wonders, many of which even skeptical historians will acknowledge happened. Then he offered himself as the means of salvation through a sacrificial death on the cross. And then by his resurrection from the dead, opened the door to eternal life and invited all to follow him. At that point, his followers came to believe that he was who he said he was. And they founded a movement that has changed the course of history and shaped human civilization like no other. Jesus stands alone among religious figures of the day. Neither he nor his followers allow for the possibility that he was merely a teacher or a prophet or a spiritual guide or a revolutionary. Listen to what one writer, John, says about him. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so as the classic argument goes, 
we really have only three options when it comes to Jesus of Nazareth. Either he was a liar, deliberately deceiving thousands of people, or he was a lunatic with delusions of grandeur, or as Bono so eloquently put it a few weeks ago, a nutter. <laughs> liar, lunatic, or he was who he said he was. Messiah of Israel, Savior of the world, Lord of heaven and earth. And that's the conclusion I came to at the end of my nearly year-long investigation into these things. Now, I should point out that as I was doing all this kind of scholarly, academic work, I was also seeking Christ personally. We've said you need these two streams. And so on Fridays for three months, I would go to a Catholic retreat house nearby and spend most of the day just walking the grounds, thinking, reading, journaling, waiting on God. I don't have time to tell the whole story, but at a certain point, those two paths, the academic one and the personal one, came together. And I found myself one summer Friday, standing in front of a cross in the middle of this grove of trees at that Catholic retreat house, with the sun shining down on me, and a sudden sense of assurance that Jesus was, in fact, who he claimed to be, Savior of the world, Lord of heaven and earth, more importantly, my Savior and my Lord. And I found a renewed confidence in him and in this gospel and a renewed commitment to spending my entire life to follow him, serve him, and make him known in the world. But don't just take my word for it. Let's turn one more time to the screens and hear a story from a Grace Chapel person. Then I'll come back and wrap things up. The past couple of weeks, we've heard from some scientists. This week, we'll hear from a business guy named John. The resurrection either happened or it didn't. But in trying to explain the Bible and explain the amount of followers, explain, um, say, to, through the Dark Ages and through the plague and through how the Christians reacted, the only way this could have happened is through the resurrection. My name is John Horcher. I'm married with two wonderful teenage kids. I was uh, born and raised uh, on Long Island and I grew up in a mainline church. And in that mainline church, uh, there was a lot of work with a book called Good News for Modern Man. And I kind of read it like, um, like a novel. And I, uh, I would read the words and I would understand it, but I wouldn't really understand the impact of this, uh, this Jesus guy and how he came to earth and what actually happened. As I got older, uh, I would listen to music of the times. There's an uh, album called New York by a guy named Lou Reed. And one of the songs there talks about needing a busload of faith to get by. And I didn't really have that kind of faith as a teen. I didn't really understand what it took. So I just kind of wrote off Christianity. I believe Christianity was one of the many religions. It was a religion. It was not necessarily the religion. What happened next was I went to uh, explore different belief systems. Uh, I saw Carl Sagan speak up at Cornell, and I thought that was a really cool experience, really understanding sort of the cosmological approach to life. Uh, I had also moved to Japan and lived in Japan for a year and dabbled in Buddhism. So again, I, I really sort of looked at all of the world and all of its belief systems and saw on a very superficial level how they could actually fit together. Growing up um, and in my 30s, uh, I really didn't think I needed a faith. I didn't think I really needed a religion. Uh, but since I was newly married, my wife and I, who was also sort of a non-believer, uh, had been exposed to Christianity, but wasn't really in 
and, and didn't really understand it thoroughly. We figured we need some sort of faith for our children, wanted to give them sort of a faith basis that they would have as they grew up. The moment of really understanding what Jesus was and was about um, really had to do with sitting in a home fellowship group, uh, really working through the Bible with other folks, trying to understand where my objections were and, and what would be knowable and what would not be knowable in the, in the story of Christ. Understanding the disciples and, and what they went through, historical fiction, that genre, had not been around during that period of time. So either things were written sort of like fairy tales, like the Greek gods, or they were written historically. This is a, a, a almost written like a, a court case where there's evidence presented and uh, constantly the writers of the, of the Gospels refer back to speak to person X or person Y about what happened if you really want to understand it. If people were making this story up, they wouldn't put that kind of historical evidence in there. And then again, at the end of the story, the apostles actually die for this story. Why would somebody die for a story if it weren't actually true? It, it, it's not something that people typically do. To me, feeling the power of Jesus is, is an amazing thing. I never knew that kind of power could be out there. I never knew that kind of power could be in me. Uh, so it gives me a, the ability to sort of walk through the day and endure what we have to endure and, and really be able to, to, to be loving while at the same time be vulnerable to others around us. Well, like all of us, John found himself facing big questions of life. He looked at a variety of options to offer answers to those questions. In the end, he found the Christian faith, and in particular, the life and death and teaching of Jesus to be the most compelling answer to those questions and to the deep longings of his heart. And so that leads us to our simple lesson for this week. The unbelievable becomes believable when we carefully consider the biblical and historical evidence for Jesus of Nazareth. Once again, we've learned we don't have to be afraid of our doubts. We just have to follow them, ask the hard questions, thoughtfully, prayerfully consider the evidence, and then arrive at our own conclusion. And interestingly, that's exactly what Jesus told John the Baptist to do when he was facing doubt. We read that Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. Jesus never rebuked John for his doubts. He simply invited him to consider the evidence. And that's all he would ask of us today. So whether you are on the seeking side of faith, investigating Christianity, or you're on the believing side, struggling through seasons of doubt, consider this. History tells us that a man named Jesus lived an exemplary life. He said some profound things. He performed miraculous deeds. He died a very meaningful death. And he allegedly rose from the dead on the third day and lives today in the hearts of his people. What will you do with that historical record? Was Jesus a liar? Was he a lunatic? Or was he, is he who he said he was, Lord of all, 
and the Savior of your soul? Only you can answer that question. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we're grateful for a time and place to think about such important things. We're grateful for the testimony of the Bible, its richness and beauty and power, its reliability. We're grateful also for the testimony of history and human experience. Pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you might guide each of us on our journeys to faith and through faith as we come to know you and follow you and make you known in this world. I pray that you might open our eyes and our hearts to recognize you as Savior and Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.